Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitry Kalyagin. We have a huge show this week. We're, of course, going to be discussing Xi Jinping's huge visit to Russia, stuff going on in the Middle East, Iran, and Syria, uh, the crazy protests going on in France. There's been a whole host of things going on as World War Three talk only increases. I don't know if it's just, you know, Elon Twitter understanding what I want to see or not, but you see things like Serbia, Donetsk, World War Three protests. Black crime. These are the things that I guess are trending on Twitter right now, which are, I think, are interesting. But we've got a whole host of things to talk about this week. Dimitri, how are you? I'm doing great, Conrad, and I'm happy to be here. And thank you to all the listeners and supporters. Just want to say that, uh, you know, some groundbreaking news have occurred over the last week and a half. Of course, some news bad, some good, but generally speaking, definitely epochal, like timeline changing events, which we'll go over today. And of course, there's just a bit too much to even introduce. I think we're just going to go through the news one by one and kind of break it down for the listeners. Yeah, of course, from the church side, there is some unfortunate things going on. Ecclesiologically, we're going to get into some of Patriarch Bartholomew's nonsense in Lithuania and more of the Russo sphere. But before we do that, I think we're just going to dive right into what was probably still been the biggest news item of the past week, and that is Xi, Emperor Xi, the Chinese emperor's visit to the Tsar's palace in Russia. It's as multipolarity rises, you know, you're, everyone's heard of this at this point, you know, it's people are probably almost tired of hearing about the end of the unipolar moment because we're just so swimming in it. But Dimitri, what is, uh, what's the situation? What is the significance? What were some of the most interesting factors, you know, break down this visit for us for a little bit, if you could. So of course, the general secretary, the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, and the president of of China has visited Russia again for another occasion. He's visited Russia many times before, but of course this visit of course happens at a time during the special military operation. So it is very interesting exactly what kind of discussions Xi Jinping and Putin have agreed to and what they have discussed. Of course, his uh, international visit as China's head of state is the first one that's ever occurred was in was uh, many years ago. This was Xi Jinping's ninth visit to Russia in total. And so he's actually quite familiar with Russia. His wife, of course, the famous soprano singer, also loves Russian culture a lot. So Xi Jinping, very close with Russia and has visited many times. Now notice, interestingly enough, Xi Jinping's previous visit, of course, has also occurred in March of 2013. So he's visited Russia many times in the last uh, you know decades ago, but now this was there was a good 10-year break between his visit. Now, the visit kind of aligns with the ICC, of course, as last week we discussed, issuing arrest warrants for Putin and actually officially announcing Putin's investigation into his you know crimes of allegedly kidnapping children from the Donbass region and from Kherson as well, which, you know, and Mariupol, which, you know, as we all understand, is, is basically an act of geopolitical and international relation PR disrespect to Putin, of course, uh, a, so a form of soft power exerted by the EU and the United States. So Xi Jinping actually arriving in Russia at this time was a kind of sign that the international community has, in fact, not turned its back on Russia. And there is still this, as Conrad mentioned, there is this still this uh, sign of unity and multipolarity is still still amidst and the international community does still support Russia despite all of the rhetoric coming from the Western states. Now, interestingly enough, the media landscape at the time was quite uh, quite bizarre, frankly. We had, you know, countries such as Armenia, which we will discuss making certain comments towards the regarding Putin and the ICC, a country such as the BRICS member of South Africa, which stands for the S in BRICS, South, South African Foreign Minister, actually, Naledi Pandora, confirms that Putin is, of course, invited to the BRICS summit in the country of South Africa in August 2023. 
Nevertheless, South Africa remaining a member of the International Criminal Court would be obligated to actually hand in Putin into the, to the Hague and to the Dutch authorities and, of course, prosecute him. So this kind of invitation of Putin to South Africa in August of this year, which, by the way, wasn't confirmed by Russian authorities if Putin would visit South Africa in August of this year, seeing kind of how the international arena is playing out of, you know, but it's nevertheless was a bit uh, comedic, if anything. But Xi Jinping definitely kind of showing showing that he's a strong leader, showing that China does stand with Russia in this time of great strife internationally. And frankly, it, it's, it's probably a positive sign for the uh, bilateral relations between the two nations. Well, it seems that the chi- you know, everyone's trying to... It's suddenly now the talking point is Russia is doomed to be the little brother to China as the power, which... You know, there, there there probably is some understanding that as China as the larger economy will be, I mean, even from a NATO perspective, China is like the number one enemy and Russia is like the secondary power that they're having to contend with more directly because of their location adjacent to their European allies. So this is kind of, this is kind of projection, I guess, that the, I don't think NATO can really understand how these sort of alliances can work outside of their security architecture that they've built up around it. But this meeting is really massive. I mean, we saw how meticulous Russia was in really rolling out the red carpet for Xi, making it seem like this very, it really was this imperial sort of occasion. We know, of course, that Putin and Xi themselves met privately for over four and a half hours. The delegation meetings were also extremely lengthy. So like, it seems that they were really making the most of this, which on the one hand, everyone knows that like a lot of this stuff is very rhetorical and, and symbolic but at the same time i mean i think if anyone's experienced this remote work stuff i think it it would make a lot of sense that if in this midst of you know this this network society and all this technology that actually getting in person and collaborating and working is very powerful so i think a lot of these people probably took advantage of that and realized how much productivity can be done and things can get concluded and agreements can be made when you actually meet up in person and meet space but in general i think we're seeing some of the biggest outcomes that were discussed and some things having to do with energy, having to do with what it literally seems, I'll ask you to expound upon this more, Dimitri, but what seems like that Russia is literally just taking their natural gas and oil deposits that they were going to Europe with the Nord Stream 2 and just whoop, just rotating them to quick 90 degrees down eastwards towards Asia and China and these other countries, which, I mean, those are technically larger markets anyway. They may not be quite as wealthy yet, but Ultimately, these economies have more people and more customers in them for these energy products as some of these areas industrialize more as well. And I was quickly just going to read a Putin quote because one of the big things that people have been seeing is the real debt, like this past week and two weeks and three weeks really, as well as the whole special military operation, has been really the first death knells of the petrodollar. And we're now seeing the yuan really ascend as this as this reserve currency, as this energy trading token assets. So one of the things Putin says was, we are for the use of Chinese yuan in settlements between Russia and the countries of Asia, Africa, and Latin America. I'm sure that these forms of settlements in yuan will be developed between Russia, Russian partners, and their counterparts in third countries. And this is the kind of thing that, again, we've talked about before, like the US in large part went to war with Saddam Hussein because he was purchasing oil and resources from Iran and other countries in non-dollars. And now it seems that the great powers of the world are fully within their own circles deciding, you know what, we're just going to be using other currencies. And we know China is rapidly building up their gold reserves and getting rid of their U.S. Treasury bonds. So something big financial is afoot here, as well as with the 
energy infrastructure and just the general world order after this monumental visit. That's right. And, and, and the yuan at the moment, of course, is the third most used currency uh, on the planet. Of course, uh, second uh, second being the EU and the first being the US, US dollar, which it doesn't add up to 100%, but the US dollar roughly accounts for 80% of world trade in exchange. Uh, the EU accounts for 40%, and the Chinese yuan accounts for 20 and other countries, of course, following behind. So the yuan, of course, steadily rising through the ranks. And this great, uh, I suppose, it, this, this great trade development with Russia, of course, uh, Sila Sibiri too, has been officially announced by Putin at this meeting with Z. And of course, Sila Sibiri translates in Russian to the strength of Siberia too, is a gigantic pipeline leading from central Russia past the Urals, from central Siberia, uh, connecting all the gas fields in in that Siberian region and traveling through Mongolia all the way to China, feeding all this gas very cheaply, the gas transportation through these gigantic pipelines, which accounts for, I believe, uh, the capacity of Sila Sibiri 2 is about 50 billion cubic meters per ga of gas per annum, which is roughly equivalent to Nord Stream 2 and 1, which they're all roughly between 50 and 55 billion cubic meters of gas, you know, at least at full capacity. So this gigantic gas line has already been in development. But today, I mean, this week, it has been officially announced. So that's, of course, going to increase Russian and Chinese trade even further. But officially, Russia already in 2023 has become the greatest exporter of both gas and oil to China. And Sila uh, Sibiri 2 is not, not the only great announcement that has, of course, occurred. Well, Sila Sibiri 3 has also been announced. And this new pipeline is not for gas. It's in fact an oil, which trans transfers oil from an oil field all the way in far east Russia, um, adjacent to the Pacific Ocean to directly to China. And of course, we spoke about um, some of the transportation ships uh, unofficially, you know, the Grey Navy transporting Russian oil, crude oil to India last week. But um, the ease of transporting oil through pipelines is just exactly how cheap it is. You have to think about, consider the factors associated with paying the crews of the ships transporting the oil, the insurance on the shipments, the electricity used to actually transport these uh, huge vessels and things of that nature. So, of course, building a pipeline which directly links the source to the particular recipient is a lot cheaper for Russia in the long term. So having a Sila Sibiri 1, 2, and 3, two of them being for gas and one for oil, directly transferring energy to China at huge volumes and essentially... Uh, creating this never-ending income stream for the Russian economy is you know, a huge achievement for the bilateral relations between the nations and generally will benefit Russia long-term as well as China, which I think it's just kind of a natural alliance between the two, which will go a long way. Um, of course, there was discussion of cooperation in the Northern Sea Route, which diversifies China's reliance on things such as the Malacca Strait and the Suez Canal. So this is long-term projections for trade around the Arctic Ocean in the north, because China does of course, worry about uh, factors such as, you know, the proximity of South Korea and Japan kind of blocking up trade routes into the Pacific. So there are these considerations of, well, Chinese and Russian trade, import, export, can can anything be done in, in the northern Arctic region, you know, to facilitate relations between the countries and to kind of bolster their economies further. So some pretty big developments, I would say, generally. Um Naturally, regarding gas, we should discuss that China has officially backed Russia as its as its sort of fellow member of the on the UN Security Council has backed Russia in its investigation of the Nord Stream Nord Stream pipeline explosion, which took place uh, last year. Of course, uh, now it's been kind of confirmed that it was a 
big cooperation between maybe US intelligence, certain NATO intelligences and Norway. But officially, of course, there hasn't been any verdict given out. But China has officially stated that it will back Russia's um, you know, claim that this explosion, this huge, I guess, you know, damaging event that occurred in 2022 needs to be investigated at an official capacity. So China has in fact, taken upon itself this role of a global mediator alongside Russia and this kind of responsible member of the international community, which wishes to bring peace and order back into, I guess, a disorderly, uh, unipolar sort of fallen hegemony environment, which we see ourselves in post, say, the Iraq war and post 9-11. Yeah, and China is really kind of the ultimate, at this point, the, the doctrine of China is the ultimate enemy of the West at this point is really coming to being with them basically tacitly supporting the special military operation and, of course, their economic and even military collaboration with Iran, who are, you know, before the Russian special military operation started, was the number one kind of military aggressor pariah state from the perspective of the U.S. and, of course, kind of their, the Israel of which they are a client state. And I think the the relationship between China, Russia, Iran is very you know, from the U.S. perspective, it's like all the axis of evil. But in many ways, China and Russia are together kind of fulfilling the needs that Iran needs economically and using both of them for kind of, they're not really competing in that country necessarily, but they are using it to their prospective military and economic advantages that, like, for example, Russia and its general southern flank, obviously Russia and Iran work together in Syria against U.S. and Israeli proxies. And then China, of course, gets a lot of energy from Iran. Iran is one of the main users of the yuan now. They've been doing trade with China exclusively in yuan with for their resources from the Persian Gulf. And China has done military exercises with Iran in the Persian Gulf, with Russia, with other countries that are generally not aligned with the NATO Atlantic bloc. And so generally speaking, the this this new I mean, and this this all comes after, you know, we're all we're a few we're a decade out from, you know, Xi Jinping talking about the new Silk Road and these other ideas as the Belt and Road Initiative has continued. We're gonna see, I mean, that stretch from Iran to to China over to I mean, I was in Croatia. The Chinese are the ones building all these huge, massive infrastructure projects in, in Eastern Europe and even parts of Western Europe and everywhere. They're really they're really kind of creating this this influence this uh infrastructure of trade and all across the Eurasian continent that they are going to be able to exploit and use as one of the main you know manufacturing hubs and sure they haven't surpassed by India in population and they are unfortunately going to experience a bit of a decline unfortunately due to their stupid one child policy that they had implemented for so long but generally speaking i think they will probably be able to recover from that and it's there's just no way around it at this point even the most kind of rah-rah U.S. propagandists are forced to face the music and admit what everyone in the intelligence and military community knew. And that's at this point, the U.S. can't really confidently say that it could fight a war against Russia and China adequately and just easily win, as well as hold on to this current economic supremacy that it has in light of the currency and energy disruptions that we just have discussed. Yeah, and of course, people should, I, I guess, one of the news that people were looking forward to was a possible, you know, hyperbolic 
relation or at least a forming of new relations between China and Russia in a military sense. Now, not, none of this has really taken place. There is no defense or military alliance between China and Russia, despite Xi Jinping's friendly outlook towards the Russian state. There hasn't been any anything signed, at least on paper, even in terms of trading military aid. Nothing really has been announced, at least officially. But of course, China still remains the greatest technological manufacturing export ex- exporter and investor in Russian industry um, over the past year, especially since the sanctions have begun. And of course, it supports the Russian economy through the export of computers, chips, cars. We're talking about low to middle grade, of course, computers, CPU powered, um, all kinds of technologies uh, electronically, which Russia cannot produce on its own. It simply does not have the infrastructure for. So China does, Russia exports raw energy, gas, oil to China, and China, of course, uh, sells uh, any sort of electronic parts which Russia requires. This was the general relation between the nations before this visit, but also during the, I guess, during the, since the beginning of the special military operation, exports have only been increasing. Of course, the numbers here are roughly about 14% of exports have increased from China to Russia since 2022, which you know, is a, is gigantic. And Russia's exports to China have increased by even more. So this is the other way around. Russia exporting its goods to China has increased by 40%, and which yeah, is it's, it's absolutely gigantic growth. And of course, this is the big pivot Conrad was speaking about with, of course, the gas being redirected from the West to the East, generally not because Russia wanted to, of course, sanction Europe or prevent gas, but because of issues such as, you know, the Nord Stream pipeline explosion, things of this nature, and some of the issues regarding uh, Ukraine and the Western sanctions. Now, naturally, the overall trade between China and Russia has reached almost 200 billion. It's sitting at around 190 billion at the end of 22. 2022, and that has grown up from 142 billion in 2021. So, ever since I guess the beginning of COVID, and you can say since the beginning of the special military operation, China, despite being seen as sort of the culprit behind COVID, and you know, there's all kinds of mythology surrounding China's particular involvement with the pandemic, but that has not really affected the trade between Russia and China. In fact, it has only improved. And that's only one side of the coin. The second side of the coin is, as Conrad said, the trade between Russia and China in Central Asia and the Middle East has only has kind of been occurring side by side. So both Russia and China are heavily invested in Iran at the moment, which is stabilizing its economy and essentially its its relations. And both China and Russia are essentially using Iran as a gateway to the greater Middle Eastern politics. We spoke about Saudi Arabian and Iranian politicians meeting up in our last week's episode. And essentially, for the first time, we have the Sunni Saudis agreeing with the Shia Iranians and Persians. So in a way, Russia's Russia can reach Saudi Arabia now through its bilateral and incredibly friendly relation with with Iran. And now, of course, China's involved here as well. And notice just how easily China and Iran, of course, cooperate just in this particular field of the Middle East. We should mention also that things such as the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which China is trying to get Iran involved in, and of course, Iranian membership into BRICS has been a big question over the last 12 months, which has arisen time and time again. You know, now that countries such as South Africa, which is a relatively large economy in, in Africa, but generally speaking, in the global sense, isn't really that big. There is a great need, I suppose, for more countries to join BRICS. You know, from a multi multipolar perspective, it would only be just to justify that countries such as Iran would, of course, join into that particular um, collaboration and to benefit, I guess, all of the, all of the members of BRICS and moving into, I suppose, whatever's coming after this great recession we're in right now. Overall, a very positive development. Z's visit to Russia has been, I guess, uh, groundbreaking in terms of, you know, 
bolstering morale of not just the Russian people, but also the Chinese people who have experienced extreme criticism since the time of, you know, since the rhetoric in early 23 about the balloons, their pressure on Taiwan, things of this nature. So now that the Chinese are sure that Russians have, Russians have their backs and the Russians are sure that the Chinese are there with them in a friendly relationship, this could have longstanding effects on not just their bilateral relations, but also on broader geopolitical um, realities. Well, I think people need to remember that having Russia's support in the Taiwan issue isn't just nothing. Russia is much more of a local player to that area than the U.S. is by any stretch of the imagination. They're they're out east. They're not far. You know, the Russian Far East fleet, That's that they're going to be a relevant naval player regarding Japan, Korea, where all those countries decide when, when the Taiwan issues faced, that's going to be a big deal. And of course, I think U.S., the U.S. is more interested in forcing that militarily sooner so that they could prevent a possible peaceful reunification of, of those two countries. But before we get to Iran itself and talking about a bit of the new fronts and hot things going on in the Middle East and Syria and Iraq and with Iran and Israel and the U.S., I want to quickly get your thoughts on Putin. He went to the new territories. He visited Mariupol. He went around. He was behind the front lines going to some of these places stopping in for civilians, saying hello, seeing what was up. It seemed to uh, raise the morale of the people there. I have commented publicly, I said I was saying Putin should have gone to Donetsk a while ago for PR reasons, but it seems he you know he finally made it there and even farther west. So what what, do you, what are your thoughts on that before we move away from specifically Russia? Well, yeah, as you've said, now following the news stream of the SMO, there were these thoughts about Putin actually re-entering Lugansk and Donetsk visiting. And I think the most credible news we had to that effect was that Putin was going to visit Donetsk um, and actually celebrate Christmas there you know, at the end of 22 and in early January 23. So he would actually attend the Christmas liturgy a celebration in January, which never took place, of course, uh, for whatever reason, the visit was cancelled. And in fact, it was never officially confirmed, but the rumors were quite heavy. And Putin, naturally, not attending some of these sites early into the conflict, did uh, kind of change, you know, there was this really bad rhetoric about him, not just in the liberal media and social media, which, of course, dislikes him naturally, but also his opponents in Ukraine. Even some right-wing people have, you know, called him, you know, Putin, who sits in the bunker and all these other I suppose derogatory terms. They're just they're claiming he not only hid from COVID in the bunker for two two and a half years, but is now hiding from the SMO, not appearing publicly and kind of disappearing for months and weeks on end. And this, of course, has dispelled all those myths. Him actually visiting Mariupol and Crimea, both basically in the span of two days, and on the twentieth of March, twenty twenty three. Alongside his confessor, Metropolitan Tikhon Opskov, who is um, an Orthodox Christian bishop, he became a bishop in 2015. But he's well known in the Russian, um, in the Russian Orthodox Church, and perhaps globally as an Orthodox bestseller. While during, while he was a priest, Father Tikhon published a very uh, popular book called Everyday Saints, which you may have read. Uh, it has been translated into many languages, but of course, it's an incredibly probably the most sold Orthodox non-church father non. Bible book in the Russian language, at least in the 21st century. So this particular bishop is known for his incredible conservative views. He's considered to be one of the perhaps leading um, leading successors or potential successor to the throne of the patriarch in case, uh, you know, Patriarch Kirill passes away. It's, con it's considered that perhaps he would receive the majority of the votes. And him him being Putin's closest advisor and, of course, confessor, and we've reported on this earlier in the podcasts of World War Now, but generally speaking, it is taken that Metropolitan Tikhon is Putin's closest 
Orthodox Christian advisor Putin does speak to the Patriarch, but more so he meets up and you know has telephone conversations with Mitropolitan Tikhon, and that's kind of who guides him through his, I guess, Orthodox life, which is very interesting. And Mitropolitan Tikhon, you know, Skov is quite far away; it's up in in the north near Belarus and Estonia. It's it's very close to Estonia actually. He visits Crimea and Mariupol with Putin, and they kind of observe the constructions and uh, visit some of the uh, civilian sites over there because Mariupol, if you recall, was besieged by by the Russian forces for a long time and withheld by the Azov Battalion in the early stages of the special military operation in 2022. So a lot of it was, frankly, destroyed in the siege, and now that Russia's rebuilding it, Putin visiting it, and it kind of, I guess, improving the morale of the locals, you know, showing that, look, your new president is here, because, of course, these regions were only added to the Russian Federation quite recently in September 22. He's kind of showing them that, look, I'm your leader. I'm not afraid to be here, just as Zelensky was not afraid to visit, you know, Kherson, Izum, some of these great cities right on the, if not Bakhmut itself, actually. Zelensky wasn't Bakhmut as well. Uh, so Zelensky visiting all these cities and not you know, being affected by any of the fears associated with him getting assassinated or killed by the Russian forces, and Putin not doing the same for quite a long time has really given us this contrast. But nowadays, all these myths and all these concerns are dispelled by Putin's visit to these new territories, and it's frankly quite refreshing. And I think, generally speaking, it was a great thing that he he did. Um, very risky, of course, which... Mind you, we did see, um, I believe it was a few days before Putin's visit to Crimea, the drone actually getting shot down over the Black Sea. So perhaps these two things are related of sorts. You know, the, the Russians essentially scouted the airspace and found this American drone, took it out with by spilling oil onto its, um, you know, onto its mechanisms and having it fall into the sea in a very disrespectful fashion. And then Putin visiting Crimea merely days after that. I think perhaps these two events are related. Well, not just that drone attack, there was a huge drone swarm attempted on Crimea, actually, almost a week after that, I think, that was totally destroyed by air defenses and the Black Sea Fleet. There wasn't, I don't believe any of them even made it past, made it particularly close to land. So I think that could have been a part of it. I think there's been talk on the Ukrainian side and the American side about some sort of huge assault to retake Crimea. It seems that's probably going to be redirected towards something to try to retake Melitopol explicitly and just cut off the land bridge. But it seems that the uh, the Russian forces have kind of dispelled and prevented any real viability that a Crimean reoffensive may have had. But when it comes to drone swarms and offensives, things are going on in Iran, Syria, Iraq, regions where Iran has proxies, regions where Russia, Iran, Syria clash with U.S. proxies, ISIS, Turkey is there as well. So this is, you know, Syria, Iraq, these regions are, you know, ever since the rise of ISIS have been some of the most contentious regions in the world, and of course with Iraq even before that for even more obvious reasons in the post-9-11 world. But I think what we see now is is, is a bit of, an, is a bit of a, an escalation in the sense that, of course, every few months, every a year, there's always some big strike with Iran and these proxies and whatnot. But it seems now that this coincides with extreme rapprochement with Bashar al-Assad in all of the other Arab countries, whether it's in the UAE, and it seems to be coming up with even places like Saudi Arabia as they've reproached with Iran, as well as extreme disruption in places like Israel as Netanyahu, this is a lot of this is breaking as we're recording, but as Netanyahu has fired the defense minister and Israel descends into protests and now the opposition and even certain government officials and leaders of the IDF are saying they don't know who to take orders from, that this is total crisis because the Israeli government is set up, especially since the last coalition that had replaced Netanyahu, is set up in this very interesting way where 
the defense minister and the prime minister and all these people are almost equals and that one can't necessarily just unilaterally act as the other one doesn't. So it seems that Netanyahu is doing his best to consolidate power and the large swath of anti-Netanyahu forces are really trying to go against him. And we may see Iran act on this disruption and we've seen Hezbollah and other Palestinian groups have increased activity on the border with Israel and in Palestine. And we've also, of course, seen increased attacks by Israel on churches and by settlers on Orthodox territories. We've posted that on the World War Now Twitter, the video of some settlers attacking the church in Gethsemane and attacking the Orthodox bishop there. But as Iran surveys all of this, there's also to its north the whole Armenia-Azerbaijan crisis, which is something that has been going on in many ways, it's almost the conflict that precedes the Ukraine war as in 2019, you know, the, the winter of 2019, they did get hot for a while and there was a lot of death and people thought, oh, wow, is this going to, and in many ways it, it, it didn't, they're not, it's not, the conflicts aren't directly related, but the, the power blocks that are aligning around those conflicts very much are. And we've seen Armenia, despite Russia being its main ally in the region against Azeri aggression on Nagorno-Karabakh. The Russian peacekeepers are the ones there on the the corridors that Armenians in those regions and Artsakh used to get back to mainland Armenia. And at the same time, Pashinyan, the prime minister of Armenia, and these other figures are saying that we will arrest Putin if he steps foot in Armenia and enforce the ICC arrest warrant, which I don't know why you'd say that if you didn't want to just push Russia towards Azerbaijan, who again... Russia has certain issues with Azerbaijan. Russia generally is an ally of Azerbaijan. Their only issue has been their treatment of Armenians. But as Armenia continues to move towards someone like Macron in France, as opposed to the obvious Christian ally of Russia, the only thing at that point that's going to keep Russia away from Azerbaijan is going to be their strong ally with Iran, not necessarily their friendship with Armenia, because Armenia doesn't have a whole lot to offer Russia in and of itself, besides, you know, it's it seems to have reneged on its CSTO duties. We've talked about that in an episode in the past. Obviously, they're an enemy of Turkey, and Russia is trying to, you know, generally play it, play it even with Turkey, not disrupt them. But at the same time, I'm sure Russia has a vested interest in seeing Erdogan reelected, which is, we're going to be continuing to talk about that on the show as well. But this whole region is just kind of in a, not free fall, it's kind of always been like that, but it's in a very disrupt it's really seeing the the throes of multipolarity and it seems now that iran russia china are winning in iraq syria israel lebanon the caucuses and that u.s influence while it's trying to claw its way back in armenia of course we saw what happened in georgia they were successful there besides that it doesn't seem that they're exactly winning and achieving their strategic objectives as easily as they have been for the other parts of this century yeah that's right and perhaps this is a um just an outcome of the Biden presidency, frankly, which is coming under heavy, heavy criticism. And even after these attacks by Iran, just notice if you recall Trump's rhetoric, compare it from when Iran took down the US drone and, you know, Trump took down the Iranian general. The rhetoric was very strong, very anti-Iranian. It was very, um, I guess, set on kind of stating US's official position on Middle Eastern politics, that it will not allow the nuclearization of Iran, the militarization of the region. Iranian involvement in Iraq and Syria will not be at all welcome nor, you know, nor kind of condoned in any capacity. And of course, the US still strongly holds the Persian Gulf and you know, its its ships do, of course, um, peruse those areas. So frankly, it is 
it is still perhaps a just a symptom of just what the Democrats have done to U.S. foreign policy and kind of the weakening of U.S. stance, uh, of the U.S. stance in the Middle East, especially after the uh, leaving of the U.S. from Afghanistan at the beginning of the Biden presidency. You know, just Biden's statement uh, during his visit to Ottawa was, you know, when the response to the Iranian drone attacks, or at least the proxies of Iran, which attacked the U.S. bases in Syria, was well that the United States does not see conflict with Iran, he says, but it needs, but it will act forcefully to protect our people. We will act forcefully to protect, protect our people. And that's exactly what happened last night because the U.S. did respond, in fact, and did allegedly attack some of these uh, proxy Syrian slash Iranian bases in Syria. And uh, allegedly 19, uh, 19 people were killed. All of these numbers, of course, were are kind of in the air. We don't have any, uh, allegedly only one U.S. contractor was died from these drone attacks, uh, you know, in Syria on the U.S. bases, and at least five U.S. troops have been wounded by the explosions. And in terms of drone attacks, we're speaking about the similar, the same sort of Shahid drones which Russia is using at the moment in Ukraine. Of course, have purchased and imported from Iran. So Iran, of course, is now using these same drones in in Syria to kind of harass these American bases. Which, technically speaking, Conrad, I think we can agree these bases are occupational sort of statements that you know the u.s still has you know, still has its footing in syria the u.s claims to be there only to keep isis down but we all know the u.s's stance towards the assad presidency many times there's been threats by u.s politicians that assad needs to go assad needs to be assassinated taken out i mean we've seen those same statements towards putin as well that putin needs to be overthrown so the u.s is the u.s actually having these three bases in syria is putting the, those u.s military servicemen at risk putting them into hostile territory openly, not, not, not just from Assad, but, but also from the local ISIS as well as Iranian proxy forces. So in fact, on one hand, I feel very sorry for the U.S. You know, military station there. They sh- really shouldn't be anywhere in that Iraq-Syria region, which is not just really hostile, but also very foreign to, I guess, to America. I mean, America has been there for 20 years, but frankly, it doesn't need to be there anymore. Oh, it's it's just a place for it's, we're just there to secure the interests of wealthy people internationally that have various degrees of things in common. But I think again we could talk about that region forever as Azerbaijan, Armenia kicks up. There seems to be some troop movement in Nagorno Karabakh. Azerbaijan may continue to make moves there against the Armenian population. Again, the Russians seem to be kind of immune from the politics of it. They seem the peacekeepers there seem to just be doing their job, which is good for the Armenian Christians there. But again, with Armenia, again, I I want to root for you against Azerbaijan, but between your monophysitism and your marriage with the West and the fact that your celebrities all suck and your sort of, I don't know, it's just this sort of, you want the help that Russia, I mean, the the leaders of Artsakh, I can't necessarily blame them personally. They're like desperately calling on Putin and Russian peacekeepers for help. Meanwhile, you know, your cosmopolitan elites in Yerevan seem like they'd rather be friends with European Union officials. So I'm a bit I'm a bit confused on, on what's going on there. I'm sure the people of Armenia would probably generally lean more towards the Putin and Russia side of things. But again, that I, I'm not 100% sure. It seems that they're more interested in in going the Georgian way than the, uh, than, 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 than the number of other ways I guess they could have gone. But again, if it wasn't for Iran, they may already be in more trouble. Iran has seems to stepped in as Armenia's defender as their spats and fights with Iran have only increased, which if you want to talk a little about that, Dimitri, we can. Before that, I'm going to move on to Serbia. After that, we're going to move on to talk about Serbia and Kosovo a little bit. Yeah, so I think generally speaking, uh, Armenia, of course, being a very small nation surrounded by 
um, hostile uh, Turkic nation groups, Armenians do not count themselves as Turkic. They count themselves as ancient Anatolians. So even ethnically and culturally speaking, they do see themselves as different to both Azerbaijan, its neighbor, and greater Turkey in that particular region. And Azerbaijan and Turkey are very much aligned and very much are allied deeply here. So essentially the the alliances, how, how I think a, a new listener would kind of see things would be Iran and Azerbaijan share a border, but they do not agree in certain regions of that border. This is on the south side of the Caspian Sea. There, there are risks in the future that um, Azerbaijan may push a little bit south into Iran, claiming that these territories are southern Azerbaijan. Historically, these regions are somehow, you know, claimed by Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan being a very new country, mind you. It's only roughly 100 years old, if, if not that. So a very new country. But again, there may be this, there may be this idea amongst militant Azerbaijanis that there needs to be a reconquista of southern Azerbaijan from a weakened Iran. So Azerbaijan and Iran are not friends, uh, despite them both being um, Muslim nations. But you know there are differences in doctrine there. Azerbaijan, of course, is the um, unofficial kind of sidekick of Turkey. And so Turkey and Azerbaijan are allied. And we spoke about this a few weeks ago in one of our episodes that without uh, Turkey sanctioning, Azerbaijan will not act in any capacity, not against Iran, nor, nor against Armenia. And Turkey is the does have the largest say here. And by Turkey, we mean at the moment Erdogan and his uh, his political party. So if Erdogan allows Azerbaijan to have another Nagorno-Karabakh uh, skirmish, they will, ha- they will have it if, you know, Erdogan actually sanctions Azerbaijani activity against Iran in order to appease NATO, that's going to take place as well. So that's the dynamics we're seeing here. And of course, as Conrad mentioned, the factor here is that Iran could potentially ally itself with Armenia. This is kind of looking into the future and, in fact, present a a, a counterbalance in that region against Azerbaijan uh, long term. So this could be, of course, positive. As the Azerbaijani lobby as well is extremely popular, both in, in the West as well as Russia. Somehow the Azerbaijani uh, PR and international relations people, are the committees and the lobbies in all these countries in the East and the West, are very, uh, you know, they're actually getting the job done. So I mean, Azerbaijan does have support from... Oh, well, I just think that that could have to do with who their second best friend besides Turkey is, which is, of course, Israel, who they get so much of their energy from and thus are allowed to put airplanes and military bases in their territory who are just north of who? Oh, their greatest enemy ever, Iran, which, as you said, tension between Israel and Iran are at all-time high right now. Both sides have talked about basically the other declaring war on them imminently and launching full-scale attacks. Israel, of course, meaning that they would have the backing of larger powers to help them, and Iran, of course, meaning that whether that means their their proxies in Lebanon and Syria or actual, you know, redeployed Revolutionary Guard Corps troops, that's... Uh, that's entirely that's all of those things are on the table all of those are on the table and i think when it comes to those kinds of of clashes we're going to have to keep up with all those extensive alliances that each of these sides have and as the turkish election comes forward i think we would see if the opposition wins you know the liberal republican party and their alliance the kilikdaraglu that we could perhaps see an even increased support for azerbaijan specifically against iran on behalf of those Western powers that would be working very hard to get Kilik Duraglu in power and to get Erdogan out. So maybe Erdogan would is going to lean into this Azeri stuff because it's popular to be pro-Azerbaijan in Turkey so that he can seem more palatable to the West so that they could perhaps tone down their support for Kilik Duraglu and their attempt to kind of influence the election, which I don't actually see happening. But 
talking about Azerbaijan, Armenia, these sort of exclaves, countries fighting for their little ethnic enclaves and territory that they have since lost due to larger imperial gains by other powers. We've got to talk about Serbia and Kosovo. And I want to talk about what's called the European plan that has really been put forward and has been read by Vucic and Kurti, who's the head of Kosovo. And it's endorsed, of course, by the Prime Minister of Albania and all sorts of others. And I briefly just want to give the details of it, which are that uh, Kosovo and Serbia recognize each other's national symbols and documents. Serbia recognizes Kosovo's sovereignty and will not oppose its membership into international organizations. It guarantees the self-governance of Serbs in Kosovo and the church. Uh, It has an exchange of missions and allows for aid from the European Union into Kosovo, which... Again, this is a big deal. Any kind of true Serbian nationalist is going to be explicitly against this. Of course, we on the show, you know that we believe the entirety of Kosovo does belong to Serbia. But this deal, from the perspective of even a far like Albanian nationalist or Kosovar nationalist, is not entirely desirable because those people don't want to give the ethnic Serbs there anything. There's been anger against that, too, from the Albanian side. Of course, I... Not necessarily going to say, I mean, it doesn't really matter what I say, whether or not this gets signed, so it's almost neither here nor there. But it seems that if, if this is going to get signed, that Vucic is getting pressure not to sign it, but at the same time, he knows that if he has European Union aspirations, that this is something that he's most likely going to need to sign, or else that's just never going to happen. And he has done so much, you could say, I guess, betrayal, or just having to fold on the relationship with Russia to not achieve that, that you could see how it would be tempting to him but this is this would be a big deal i mean that conflict's been raging since the 90s and while ultimately many would say and i almost agree that from a pure politics perspective it's more important to get montenegro back for serbia at this point it's already its own country so that so some, many see that ship as having already sailed and thus don't want to have the same thing happen and actually recognize kosovo as a country but you know the serbs are even more than stuck between a rock and a hard place and we have always said that this region could be a potential second front for NATO to stir things up or for things to just boil over on their own. So we're always watching, of course, Bosnia and Herzegovina being another place that has seen increased tensions. We've talked about it on the show. There's been some increased sovereignty and some elections and police force developments in Republika Srpska region of Bosnia that have been interesting. The people there definitely want to rejoin Serbia, so we're always watching the region. But... This is this, These developments are big, and it seems that right now the Prime Minister of Albania is really meeting with the head of Kosovo to get him to sign this and do whatever he can to give a, the Serb demands so that this can get signed. And of course, this would almost in, um, inherently guarantee Serbia's ascension into the EU if, if Vucic does go and sign this, these particular agreements and documents and Perhaps it will even take Serbia at least temporarily out of the influence sphere of Russia as young Serbians, as moderate Serbians actually enjoy some of the perks of being a member of the EU state, you know, the non-visa regime, things of this nature, the particular migrations and emigrations that will occur. This will, of course, affect the Serbian people very, very greatly in the medium to long term, so essentially when Serbia does become a member of the EU. So it has larger implications than simply on the small municipalities and autonomies that the Serbians are being granted in Kosovo, which, of course, um, frankly speaking, these could be positive for at least the local Serbs in Kosovo, who you know will receive some sort of some sort of peace finally after all these uh, years of harassment and ongoing pressure from the Kosovo pro-Albanian politicians. Now, naturally speaking, this 
this does really align with Vucic, Vucic's politics as a moderate Serbian kind of neither neither very liberal nor very conservative. So, in fact, it 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 very much is in line, and I I do fear that perhaps uh, these agreements will be signed. <clears throat> there is a s- strong kind of esoteric leaning here. In fact, that these agreements are being spoken of in March of uh, 2023, essentially uh, on the. Um, on the anniversary of the 1999 bombardment of Belgrade and Serbia by the NATO forces um, 24 years ago. Now, the Patriarch of Serbia, of course, uh, was was there in Belgrade, officially gave a speech saying that we Serbian people do forgive NATO and do forgive these Western uh, powers for bombarding the Serbian people, but we will never forget and we will learn from these atrocities about who we can trust and who we will align ourselves with. And we will not be Serbians if we forget some of these things that have been done to us, but we can forgive them. So the Patriarch of Serbia making a clear statement that, yes, these uh, NATO atrocities, which occurred 24 years ago, and, you know, everyone's kind of working off of this. For example, Russia's commenting on the fact that, yes, NATO's bombardment was a lot worse than anything Russia has done in the Ukraine. And people people do, of course, tie their, tie their actions to and tie their actions to how NATO has behaved in Belgrade in 1999. Now, interestingly enough, of course, these two events are aligning, right? So in a way, it's kind of perhaps even a disrespectful gesture to the Serbian people saying that, hey, you guys will need to give up on your aspirations to actually retain Kosovo in the long term to kind of to bring Kosovo back under the Serbian under the under the guise and control of Serbia long term in order to align yourselves with the EU and possibly even with NATO in the you know completely long term vision of what this plan has for Serbia so in a way it is very uh, kind of uh, esoteric and a little bit um a little bit unfortunate i think but yeah there's really nothing we can do about it frankly if anything uh, looking at the Serbian uh, you know side of things there are domestic politics there's a large chance that there won't even be protests to something like this being signed no, Serbia. It's as it almost seems a little, as multipolarity rises. You feel bad for Serbia. You wish that maybe we were five to ten years in the past, and they might be able to, you know, it might, they might have caught the wave a little bit early. But they were really, in many ways, the first true victim of just total. I mean, I'll just say globalist rape. I mean, they had all of their ex- exterior territory away from their true heartland, completely ripped away. Kosovo, in many ways, being that religious heartland, they had their coastal access mainly in Montenegro taken away. And now all these places, now so many of their people are under Muslim, at best, frankly, or if not secular, total rule, or have been banished to the diaspora for a better life. So it's it's a real tragedy what's happened to such a beautiful, which I've said before, the it's impossible to ignore the the focus, the true focus of of Zog and the world government and the you know the powers that be's focus on Orthodox countries that that they see as, as having a powerful enough culture to stand against their machinations. Those are the places that need to be truly broken, both geographically and politically, as well as, you know, the mm-hmm. actual spirit of those people themselves, which is, is, is just horrible to see. And we can hope that as America, you know, perhaps becomes a more aware people and maybe even a more orthodox country that some of those things can can subside. But in that same region, you know, over in the eastern Mediterranean, Turkey is always back in the news. The grain deal is something that has continued to be talked about. And I think Dimitri has a bit of, a bit of things to talk to us about that. Yeah, fortunately enough for, for the entire world, as well as Russia and Ukraine, the grain deal has been agreed to between you know, Russia and Ukraine have actually sat down at the table and said, look, the grain deal will be extended by an additional 60 to 120 days. Now, for those of you who may not be aware of what the grain deal is, essentially Russia allows 
Russia, the Russian fleet controls the entire Black Sea region, and it doesn't allow any Ukrainian ships to actually buy to pass by out of Ukraine without uh, explicit Russian sanctioning and condoning thereof. So, of course, what happens to Ukrainian exports of, say, fertilizer, especially its grain and, and the wheat and all the other vegetables and goods freshly produced in Ukraine and exported overseas, especially to countries such as Egypt, which heavily depends on Ukrainian grain. Unfortunately, Egypt, like a huge country of 90 plus million people, doesn't have a very good doesn't have a very good uh, farming culture at the moment, which is you know a little bit comedic in a dark way because you know Egypt was the breadbasket of the ancient Roman Empire, but at the moment it does depend on Ukrainian exports, and these exports are guaranteed from uh, the Odessa region, from the three ports there: the port of Odessa, the southern port named Yuzhny Port, and the Chernomorsk Port, which is the Black Sea port. So these three ports in the far southwestern region of Ukraine. Uh, are allowed by Russia to export all of its grains and shipments through the Black Sea all the way to you know the, the, the Mediterranean, to Turkey, to countries of the Middle East, to Africa. And Russia does have to agree to allow these Ukrainian ships to actually bypass. And of course, there are probably tariffs involved as well, uh, to a relatively low extent. And notice just the particular tragedy that would be involved if this this grain deal would be you know stopped or even halted for a time. People were worried at the um, inception of the SMO. I recall in April and March 22 that you know, even Russian analysts were saying that the potential, the risk of the biolabs as well as a risk of a global hunger actually beginning, like a new global holodomor, a chain reaction, a domino effect of the grains and Ukrainian produce not reaching the world population. Of, you know, because of this particular conflict. And it seems Zelensky's government is sensible enough to actually sit down on the table and say, yes, look, we're at war with you, Russia, but can we come down to this agreement and actually export some of our goods? And, you know, can we, you know, can we actually agree upon this? And it's not, we're not in a total war situation. We can actually still use some of our port lands. And it's, it's really, I think, a positive development for Russia. And Erdogan was instrumental in securing this extension recently, and he has thanked Putin personally. He had a phone call with Putin a few days ago at the end of March, stating that you know Putin has a very positive attitude in extending the Black Sea grain deal, and he has a positive outlook on exactly how Ukrainian-Russian trade will look will look like in the future. So generally speaking, this is a positive development. But I had a lot of people anxious, especially those who were following the economic side of the conflict over the last year or so. Well, call me schizophrenic, but this the way that this is being treated, I mean, it seems very clear that the Ukrainian, the people that are calling any of the shots, at least on the Ukrainian side, are very aware that they're going to have to give up some land, come to the negotiating table in the long term. Therefore, there's no reason in destroying our relations with literally any African country ever especially after what we saw in Russia with over 40 African countries pulling up to that delegation that happened after their meeting with Xi, the huge Russian-African summit on multipolarity saw literally 40 African countries represented with some of their highest-ranking officials, including their leaders and heads of state in Russia to discuss this realignment and allyship and that sort of thing with each other to, in this in the face of, you know, growing currency destabilization as the petrodollar goes away and all these ideas that we've been talking about. And so the grain deal going through, of course, is great for anyone in Africa, especially Egypt, which has the highest import of grain and wheat of any country in the world, as they as they're already on the brink of experiencing extreme issues with their uh, the Nile River as Ethiopia expands their reservoir of the Grand Renaissance Dam if they've dammed the end of the Nile River. So Egypt and its grain and agriculture is a big thing for future shows, actually. But I think as, uh, again, call me schizophrenic, I think, but as we see this election of Erdogan come up, that might, I think there's 
some degree of timing, at least around the U.S.'s support for like what you can almost call the final big true push for Ukraine before its backers kind of start to change form and say, maybe we need to go to the negotiating table. Maybe we need somebody new besides Zelensky. Maybe we need to surrender some territory. Maybe we need to get in contact with the Russians again. Any number of things. I wouldn't be surprised if the Turkish election is being watched very closely. And if Erdogan loses and the U.S. realizes that they've now got a safer foothold of influence in the southern Black Sea, that then they might feel more comfortable going for broke with Ukraine. But if Erdogan wins, they might need to realize that they're going to take the, uh, they need to kind of cut their losses and get out while they can before they, before something even more humiliating happens. Again, call me schizophrenic, but we've put forward how important we think that election is for this conflict and for the greater world war. So I, I, I think there's something to that. And just focusing on on that area that used to belong to the you know great Ottoman Empire in the past, but that Odessa region is of course adjacent to Moldova and Transnistria, and we spoke about this a few weeks ago. There was this potential amphibian slash sea time assault that the Russians were planning, and I think to some extent this the forces are still there. there, there many Russian helicopters, hundreds of ships, essentially the entire Black Fleet, prepared to leave and perhaps assault Ukrainian land to some extent. Now that particular province that would be assaulted would be the Odessa province, which has all three of these ports, the usually port, Chernomorsk port and port of Odessa, which export the grain. So frankly, what would happen if Russia assaulted that oblast just to assist some of its uh, allies in Transnistria and put it in Ostrovia, uh, you know, in opposition to Ukrainian and Moldovan pressure? Uh, of course, these, these are very apocalyptic scenes. But as you can see, there's probably a reason why the Ukraine stopped pressuring Transnistria, and probably one of those reasons was that the, you know, the EU, some of the countries you know, related, you know, really involved in international trade, have actually said, "Look, Ukraine, you guys cannot. If if you guys attack Transnistria now, the only avenue Russia has of responding would be to attack the Odessa Oblast, and any attacks on that particular oblast would halt or at least pause for some extended time any exports from the Ukrainian ports in the region. So." I think that's a huge consideration, which, um, frankly, politicians around the world are taking into account you know, as they're preparing for a potential, you know, hunger strike. If this if this uh, conflict gets any bloodier and any more disastrous than it than it already is, I think that's always a risk and something to be taken into account. Now that the Transnistria question has calmed down to some extent, and Ukraine has stopped its rhetoric towards, you know, actually assaulting the Transnistrian borders, and it's kind of not really pushed on that particular front. I think there, I think this has something to do with the particular grain deal as well. There's probably some, at least some percentage of uh, effect that one one has on the other. So yeah, I think that's all related. Now again, the Black Sea is just where. It's the it's the war lake right now. It's where the it's where the power is being exchanged, and I could see all sorts of things happening with the Bosphorus Straits and the assault on Odessa, and the grain deal and general international supply chains and Turkish Russian relations. All of this unfolding, and we know that this is what the saints spoke about. Go back and listen to any number of our shows, especially the ones in the titles at least where we explicitly mention St. Paisios and others. We we talk about all of this extensively, and of course we're going to be talking with our friend David, doing some live streams, doing some more shows on the elections in Turkey coming up, because we, of course, would be remiss not to do that, considering how much we talk about it on World War Now. But we're going to move even farther west and talk about, unless you have anything you want to say about this anymore, Dimitri, on the Black Sea, but I want to talk about the protests in France and uh, what we're seeing, why it's going on, some some of the lessons I guess you could, we can take away from it. 
and in general kind of also how it relates to multipolarity. And I'll probably briefly talk about what, in general, Western Europe, kind of where each country kind of stands. Yeah, I think what's happening in France at the moment is baffling a lot of people, you know, seeing as to how it has almost no relation and no effect from, you know, France is doing relatively well inflation-wise, economically, at least immigration. It's, you know, as the West sees it, it is, it is very um, multicultural and very successful, and it's globalizing quite efficiently, and it isn't very involved in Ukraine at the moment. So it, France actually has the best uh, the best status, at least, of any uh, Western, Western first world country at the moment. It's very neutral in a way, and even CNN Business, actually, uh, this is a headline of theirs. They're, they're saying, the French are up in arms over retiring at 64. How do other countries compare? So there's still this idea, Conrad, that the French are actually protesting this, you know, almost to the extent where the King of England doesn't even visit France at the moment. It's that intense in France. Uh, over, And they're thinking it's just because of the pension age actually being increased by two years. But I believe there's probably more involved to, you know, in this particular question here. Yeah, no, you're right. And it's ultimately, I've said this before, but this is kind of a compounding issue. People are comparing this to the yellow vests. And this is the first violence we've seen since the yellow vests, which pretty sure the last yellow vest protests we saw were 2019, I think was when all that was wrapping up, maybe 2018. If my memory serves me correctly, it's definitely been over well over four years. So I think it's been, it's definitely been a long time since we've seen this level of violence in France, despite the fact we know France loves its protests. There's always people in the streets for something. But this has really gotten to the point where we're seeing city halls around the country burn down, a lot of violence against police, police violence against the protesters, which has been a big theme. Macron has kind of, you know, he's really embraced. He realizes he's a leader who kind of believes in his own political vision and has embraced something you might perhaps see from a Lukashenko or a Putin, but the absolute sort of punishment of those who disagree with the regime by the police force, which is very jarring to those in the liberal West who see France as this sort of very checks and balanced power. And it's one of the good members of the international world order and the rules-based international world. So I think a lot of this stuff is matrix breaking for those people. And that's why they want to see it shut down quickly. But in, in, in France, the police very much have a lot of power. The police are, when it comes to the government at this point, they relied on them so much during the Yellow Vests and other times that they're very much indebted to them. So I think the, the police have gained a lot of institutional power in France, especially within the Macron regime. But you're right, this isn't about this kind of minuscule pension reform. If it was, you could almost say that Macron was justified in cracking down because it's ridiculous in some sense, as Dimitri has broken down the pension difference in France and other countries and what kind of protests those other countries experienced over much more radical change. But ultimately, due to the, as Dimitri said, the multiculturalism, which has only been increased under Macron, the, the general cheer globalism of it all, the internationalism, the rabid support for Ukraine, the crackdown on religious people, uh, especially in Christians. He has cracked down on Muslims as well, but that's in a reaction to those rising up against his pro-immigration policies. And in general, there have been other economic deals like the gas tax. And some of those things, again, they, they go away for a while, but then they get quietly pushed back through the government and everything is just more expensive. And again, we saw the same thing happening in the Netherlands. The Netherlands was just that big victory for the pro-farmer party in the Netherlands after massive protests. So there's, there is this sort of underlying general big 20-something percent of people in almost all these European countries that when it comes to the COVID stuff and when it comes to the immigration stuff and when it comes to the war in Ukraine stuff and when it comes to some of these other more nefarious machinations of 
of the general EU and who are the EU elite are but the broadly most representative openly of just the global nefarious liberal elite that there's this population in Europe that are always kind of against that. And that is compounded and used this pension reform thing to explode into these protests. Yeah, the, the pension reform is no, without a doubt a pretext to a larger, you know, larger systemic unrest, or at least uh, the people of France being upset with current um, domestic as well as perhaps international relations that France has with some of its neighbors, including the some of the refugee refugee policies being passed as well as immigration changes over the last few decades. I think definitely this has kind of compounded and uh, resulted in what we see now where every three or four years almost cyclically uh, similar to the uh, to the markets, the, the French people rise up and protest, uh, not in the hundreds of thousands, not in tens of thousands, but in the millions. They, they walk out onto the street and, of course, destroy infrastructure, upset the police, etc. And we see all these, um, we see protests larger than we saw in Belarus or Russia in any any time in the recent decades. So if anything, this should shut down any idea that these Eastern dictatorships are cracking down on protests. Like this protest in France doesn't even compare to some of the anti-COVID measure protests in China. So just for just for the reasons of comparison, like that's how serious it is in France at the moment. And naturally speaking, I think historically France is reaching about the same age of the US as the United, the United States Republic. So these Republic nations, perhaps this is their expiry date around the um, 250 year mark where uh, protests begin to rise up. You know, these the institutional breakdown begins to occur. I guess even the ethnic composition of the local people who made up this republic, this liberal republic in the first place, begins to kind of disintegrate and break up. And in fact, the ideology itself is in fact expiring because France was one of the first Rothschilds bank, uh, of course, bases in Europe, as well as one of the first, uh, I guess, Masonic, real Masonic governments established on the European continent, if not the first one, you know, the Grand, the, the Great Lodge of France, of course, is one of the leading Masonic institutions around the world to this day. And of course, it was the mother of the Russian Lodge as well, which, you know, was so impactful in the Russian Revolution. This is a more of an eighth era subject uh, for all our listeners to get involved in, but definitely France being this uh, great republic, now it's kind of cracking at the uh, at the seams. I think it has a more uh, more profound message for all those interested in, uh, I guess, the the life the lifeline of these republics and democratic institutions. I think there is an expiry date and nothing built on these uh, flawed evil kind of modernistic anti-christian foundations can last a long time i think 250 years is uh quite generous no and as you as you said france being that first country to overthrow the ancien regime i mean perhaps you could say the british revolution where they decapitated uh king charles ii that might have been the first true victory i guess of that elite but in an explicit form it was of course in france where they not only, of course, killed their monarchs, but also entirely overthrew even the form of the monarchical government and entirely completely revolutionized society for a time before Napoleon both usurped all of it, but restored some form of order to what was an entirely kind of chaotic Masonic demonic overtake. But as you said, the Napoleonic government was still deeply Masonic. And in now the French right, we see have often been considered the most Russophilic. And as we talked about in previous episodes, I talked about it in my solo episode, and we talk about it in the episode after, Prince Royce, one of the leaders in the Reichsberger movement in Germany, they have also always considered themselves pro-Russian as they kind of hailed their uh, their monarchical German roots back to you know pre-Nazi, the Germans of the of that uh, you know of that monarchical era and the Kaiser, and so 
this kind of underground movements in these countries who have now been deeply infiltrated, the, the, thus the resistance in said countries are now more in line with, I guess, what we would call the true resistance to globalism, which is some form of Christian resurgence of of something more akin to the Anshin regime, which is, of course, being spearheaded by what we now see as Russia, a revanchist, you know, orthodox state. And that's a bit of a far stretch from talking about protests over pension reform. But I think it, it all does come together when you think about, again, the fact that the pension reform change itself is not even that dramatic, and this is part of a bigger picture. But when it comes to some of these other Western European countries, again, the UK, again, completely in its throes of support for Ukraine. It doesn't seem to be going anywhere. The Netherlands, Belgium, these countries are deciding to send planes, some of them now. I can't remember which country it was, sent jets. There's, of course, countries that want to send jets but can't, but now some of the countries that actually have already purchased U.S. planes are deciding to send these things to Ukraine, and this is, of course, seen as an escalation because all these countries have their own individual relations with Russia. People forget how big of a power Russia was before all of this. But, of course, Ukraine, I mean, uh, Italy, which we all thought we had a big conservative victory in Georgia Maloney as she won extreme popular leadership. Unfortunately, she has gone full Ukraine and said that we will continue to support Ukraine no matter how it affects the level of support for our government by the population, which is, I mean, if you run as an anti-globalist and say something like that, I, I got to take away your, your based card, I guess what I'll have to say on that. And it's not only that, but Maloney, of course, Giorgia Maloney, the Prime Minister of Italy, painted herself as a populist leader, you know, in the in line of Trump and some of the other more popular leaders in, in Hungary uh, and as well as Poland. So she really has portrayed herself as this right wing woman, not probably not a feminist, not a left wing woman, but more of a right wing, this power lady, this new Margaret Thatcher of an, of an Italian flavor. But she's gone actually against the popular vote, like polls in Italy as well. One from February, for example, shows that 45% of Italians are against sending weapons to Ukraine and only 34% were in favor. So this was a pretty broad poll. And of of course, um, Maloney's uh, own party was opposed. 47% of her own party was opposed to arms deliveries to Ukraine. And in fact, Maloney, there we go, uh, end of March, gives this powerful speech about how we will support Zelensky, we will support Ukraine. Ukraine is the symbol of liberal sovereignty that if we let it fall, then it'll have you know deeper implications on the future of Europe and liberal democracies in Europe. And it's just, it's it's gross, in fact. And, and a lot of people who've kind of put their eggs into her basket, or at least, her, you know, no pun intended, but have supported her over you know this idea that well this blonde based woman will rise up you know fight away african immigrants and kind of restore italy to this new uh perhaps more conservative vision that you know you know has brought has been brought up back in the 1930s or you know these fantastical visions for italy kind of stopped at this almost like whimsical loitering at the at you know essentially at, at this food bowl which the globalists pour snacks into so in fact i'm not too sure where maloney's going with this because she doesn't have the overall support of her party nor the italian people so what is exactly what exactly is she trying to achieve here? Is, is this more of a she actually believes in these things, or is it more of a Vucic moment where Vucic just you know he openly says, "Well, guys, I don't really love the West, but I have to appease them." And Maloney's also joining in on this, saying that, "Hey," but her speech was very fiery. Unlike Vucic's kind of somber, neutral statements, her speech actually had emotion and passion. And I'm not saying this because she's a woman here, but she did seem very involved in the particular words she was espousing, which were incredibly anti-Russian. Well, look, we all know Vucic is backed into a corner. We call him the cuck of Kosovo, but that's not to say that we necessarily think he he's a Serb. He just he just kind of has a stupid vision for the future and is, is a cuck. 
But Maloney, I'm going to get a little conspiratorial here, but look, Italy had swung to like the hard right. It was obvious. It wasn't like debatable. Like everyone knew, like you go to Italy, the people there, it's a conservative country. They were not voting in another left-wing government. And we had already had ascendant Salvini and he and Berlusconi, who is much more moderate than Salvini and Maloney, but was willing to ally with him and his Forza Italia party. And Berlusconi is a friend of Putin. So suddenly, though, we see the rise of this party that had reformed from, you know, a neo-fascist Mussoliniist party, not disavowing, not saying that's bad or anything, just the facts. The Brothers of Italy is allowed to suddenly rise, completely ascend in the polls and overtake both Salvini's party and Berlusconi, become the biggest party in the coalition, making Maloney have to become the prime minister, not Salvini, who had failed to do so in a government takeover where he was the interior minister and ultimately ended up ceding a right-wing government to a fake left-wing unpopular coalition for a number of years before the latest elections that saw Maloney elected. And suddenly this lady's elected, and the Ukraine thing comes around, and suddenly she's all about Ukraine, and it's the whole big thing. It's almost like the whole thing was set up, that she was kind of put into power, perhaps by the NATOist powers that be. It was put into the spotlight to make sure that they took advantage of the right-wing rise in Italy, and she was at the front forefront of it so that they knew Italy was in their camp and the risk of escalations in Russia and Ukraine, which we know were largely provoked by the United States. And again, not, I don't think that's even that far of a stretch when you think about think all the things in context. But again, I don't want to just get conspiratorial there. I want to make the broader point. And I think many will agree here at this point. Can we just get away from the women and the politics here? Like, it's just not doing anything for us. I'm sorry. Like, we had, everyone's, oh, excited, based Maloney, she's going to do it. Oh, total failure. Everyone's excited. Oh, oh, Le Pen, Le Pen, she's got it this time. Surely third time's a charm, right? No, total failure. She can't even beat Macron, who can't even go a few months without a violent protest movement in his own country. We, we need some competence here, and I have yet to see any of it from any of these female politicians that are supposedly, you know, sweeping the populist right and all this kind of stuff. That's not to say that some of them can't do their part and people have done well, but generally speaking, I think we have proven leaders that are conservative Christians. We have people like Putin, Orban, Assad. These are leaders who have stood in the face of actual strength and corruption, and I think I think the male gender has made its case for, for the role of authoritarian Christian leader. You know, I don't think that should be debated. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting contrast between Russian female politicians, even the one who's actually alongside Putin, invited to the ICC to stand trial and should be arrested, who has 16 children, is married to an Orthodox priest, and in fact is very humble and pious and very feminine in her, in her nature. But 16 kids, a lot of them are adopted actually from foster cares and Two of them are adopted from the Donbass region, I believe. But yeah, she's married to a priest and she's like a, a minister or at least uh, participating in Russian politics regarding um, children's affairs. So we have this particular lady and then you have these, uh, uh, you know, Maloney, her French counterpart, as well as even, for example, the Belarusian um, oppositionary leader, Tsikhanovsky, these like powerful women who, again, even even in uh, social media terms, like Lauren Southerns, they don't really move the conversation anyway if anything they provide entertaining content for a while they provide hype but then the hype dies down and nothing really we come to no particular results long term but you know it reminds me of Berlusconi who said you know all Zelensky had to do was stop attacking the two republics of Donbass and you know this war would never have happened and he says I judge Zelensky very negatively his uh, I very negatively judge the behavior of this gentleman so we have this old Italian mafioso type 
you know, politician who just says, look, um, you know, and this is referencing his relation with Libya, whom he betrayed later on. But nevertheless, his particular stance on Zelensky is that Zelensky simply doesn't do business well. Meanwhile, Maloney simply does not care and goes along with whatever NATO has kind of put on her desk, whatever's in the particular folder. Uh, but look, uh, I just want to mention political rhetoric can change over the years, like uh, just kind of moving into the Ukraine-Russia theater. Medvedev recently has mentioned that, look, if Russia, if Russian directions on the Ukrainian conflict are not met, if the politicians and the bureaucrats in Russia, the public servants actually responsible for, for the production of tanks, are not, uh, you know, are not actually fulfilling their duties, he reminded them openly that what Stalin did to those people in his particular Communist Party who didn't fulfill their roles and duties. So Medvedev made this reference, this open reference to Stalinism. And back in 2010, Medvedev would make these weird um, gestures of like political liberalism from the Russian end. For example, the Katyn massacre, which occurred in Poland during World War II, or prior to World War II, at least from the Russian perspective, Medvedev actually handed over archival documents from KGB and KVD archives to the Polish government secretly. And they haven't even been publicized openly in for the Russian people. So there are a lot of archives actually going back to the persecution and killings by the NKVD KGB, which are not even publicized in Russia, but Medvedev handed them over in 2010 during his presidency to Poland as an act of goodwill, as an act of like this open liberalism that Russia's anti, anti-Stalin, anti-KGB. So Medvedev was openly anti-Stalin back then, but now suddenly he's quoting Stalin. You know, So things do change eventually, but I guess people like... Um, Maloney simply won't be in power long enough to kind of see those changes occur, unlike Medvedev, who's been around for several decades. Yeah, Russia, you know, we can have women in politics. They can be the minister of children's affairs and these sorts of things. But, you know, prime minister, I think I think we know what that goes. I think it's funny, though. I mean, they're going to are they going to drag her to the ICC and prosecute her for like two counts of kidnapping for adopting orphans from the Donbass? Is that is that the details of it? It's like they're in your house right now. You kidnap her, which I think I just think it's hilarious that that was the narrative they decided to run with, of all things. But yeah, no, Ukraine, uh, Bakhmut is well over 75% of Bakhmut is under Wagner control at this point. I think that may have even changed by the, that will probably have changed by the time we publish this podcast. So generally speaking, that battle is kind of coming to a close as we see, as I said earlier, what seems to be Ukraine wanting to do kind of a last ditch effort to cut off Crimea from the land bridge to the rest of the Russian Federation. But as well as that, we see the date for the expulsion of the monks from the Kiev Caves Lavra approaching quickly, which is very tragic. And we're, of course, praying for them. The monks have decided they're staying strong. We don't know exactly what that will look like when the authorities come to arrest all of them. I, We could perhaps see a, ma- a video of them. I, I mean, I don't know. I think the Ukrainian government would try pretty hard to prevent any video of that mass arrest from coming out. So I'd imagine they'd establish a pretty big perimeter, but I'm sure some will get out regardless. I'm, I'm kind of curious on what you think this whole, how this is all going to play out. I think ultimately, yeah, it's, it'll be up to the lady, which is why Metropolitan Anufri and uh, Metropolitan, um, uh, and, and the other Metropolitans in the hierarchs, as well as the leaders of the Kiev, uh, Kiev Petrovsk Seminary have stated that the lady actually need to rise up and protect the Lavra. Legally, they mentioned legally, but how can you follow the law if the law literally states you are exposed, you know, expelled? And, the you know, again, these are very questionable things. Obviously, they meant peacefully, right? Peacefully protest and not have BLM-like riots in Kiev, which I think to some extent BLM-like riots are very much needed by the Orthodox people in Kiev. There needs to be a full-on uprising against Zelensky at this point. This may be the only thing that would be preventing him from 
at least conducting this uh, mass expulsion and and there's large acts of sacrilege in in the you know the capital of Ukraine Kiev at the moment but yeah there's uh, the total numbers of Kiev Pechersk monks at the moment as well as some of the acolytes and members of staff would only amount to between anywhere between 200 and 300 people so it's i think it would be very possible for Ukraine to simply move in there police officers and SBU troopers and SWAT teams and simply arrest all 200, 300 of them, including the bishops and the clergymen actually involved there and, you know, either imprison them or simply transport them and put them on house arrest somewhere on the outskirts uh, on some other Orthodox property um, on the outskirts of Kiev and kind of isolate them, take their access from, you know, to the internet away, take their mobiles away, do a full hardware sweep of the monastery. Of course, find all these evil Russian brochures that reference certain events, you know, in the past and, you know, pre-revolutionary Russian imperial books that mention Ukraine as a member of Russia, et cetera, et cetera, and kind of take that and use it in a propaganda piece, publish it both in English and Ukrainian and turn more Ukrainian people, especially those brainwashed by this propaganda against the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, which, of course, is the is a branch of the Russian Orthodox Church, ultimately, which, frankly, that's the main church they want to destroy at this point. Uh, at least visibly, that's what's happening here. Uh, there have been, of course, uh, statements by Patriarch Kirill to the United Nations, as well as a lot of Orthodox churches, including the Serbians, the Georgians, have appealed to the United Nations and other international institutions asking for aid. But these globalist structures, as me and Conrad have been mentioning over these episodes, they do not care about the state of orthodoxy in Ukraine. If anything, their promotion of of the, of the destruction of the orthodox Christian faith over the decades has, you know, their kind of promotion of atheism and I guess this uh, New World Order philosophy has only um, exacerbated the uh, the death of Christianity in a Western sense, but also now actively in an Eastern sense. So. Um, it's it's not looking very good for the monks, at least at the end of March twenty two twenty three. That is, no, and it's we have to of course keep them in our prayers. And as many have now said, that it's a wonder what what this is going to do to the Ukrainian lands. You know, both disrupting these monks from their prayer as well as just directly, I would say, challenging God in this way and just forcing this issue of schism onto the onto the entire world that have been forced into this conflict monetarily and in many ways militarily in some regard. But when it comes to schism, I want to be sure we talk about this. It's Patriarch Bartholomew, who is, again, one of the main reasons that Zelensky is able to expel these monks from the monasteries because of this parallel schismatic church that Bartholomew established. He's now doing the same thing in Lithuania. And I'm reading this from Ortho Christian. Patriarch Bartholomew of Constantinople and, Lithu- and Lithuanian Prime Minister Ingrida Simontie signed a cooperation agreement today to formally establish the presence of the Patriarch of Constantinople. The Patriarch and State are thus establishing a parallel jurisdiction in the Baltic State, as Lithuania is universally recognized within the Orthodox Church as the canonical territory of the Moscow Patriarchate. Today, a new perspective opens before us and an opportunity to jointly seek the establishment of the Exarchate of the Ecumenical Patriarchate in Lithuania, Patriarch Bartholomew said after signing the agreement. The Prime Minister had declared as early as May that the state was willing to help Constantinople set up shop. However, the PM is known to distort facts about the church's stance and activity. Recall that Patriarch Bartholomew recently received a handful of canonically defrocked clerics under his omophorion unilaterally nullifying the actions taken by the canonical authority over them. They served their first liturgy as clerics of Constantinople in Vilnius on Sunday. So this is the exact same playbook we saw in Ukraine. Defrocked, heretics, schismatics, these are just laymen's at, laymen at this point that are then elevated back into the, cler- into the clergy with the EP's approval to then completely usurp the canonical jurisdiction, the actual apostolic church there. 
And what this seems to also be happening with the full support of, of the State Department. I mean, it's literally happening with the Prime Minister of Lithuania, who is literally just a puppet of the United States government. So I think, I mean, I, I mean, am I a conspiracy theorist for saying that Patriarch Bartholomew is a State Department puppet? I don't think so. But in many ways, it seems that he associates with them and is willing to act on their behalf. Part of me even thinks it's even more insidious than that, and even it's desperately malicious. I think none of us actually saw in 2018 when the schism first began, when this simulacrum, simulacrum schismatic, heretical, anti-Christian church in Ukraine was established, this fake church, essentially. Nobody really knew why Bartholomew exactly was doing these actions, because there was no particular pretext, nor was anybody actually asking for it, and the membership of the church was incredibly small. But now we see in 22 and 23 exactly how the anti-Christian state of Zelensky, Poroshenko, those parties, those people in charge of Ukraine, as well as NATO, act upon the creation of the simulacrum because they can simply replace the original church by destroying it, sanctioning it, persecuting it with this fake. And so this fake was created four years ago, a while back, long enough to where nobody really remembers, nobody really cared about Ukraine, couldn't even point to it on the map. It was established long enough back in time that now they can bring it in as this alternative, this free Ukrainian church. So it's actually incredibly insidious. And Patriarch Bartholomew, is, uh, I guess his involvement in it is, uh, I mean, he's the chief figure here. And I think he definitely knew exactly what the plans were. Perhaps even Bartholomew and Zelensky actually spoke, and Poroshenko, in fact, have all agreed to this maybe five years, if not a decade ago, to this, you know, when this Ukrainian conflict even began. This is something that could, conspiratorially speaking, go back that far. And uh, naturally, what's happening in Lithuania at the moment with the Prime Minister Ingrida Simonet, the Prime Minister of Lithuania, this, um, I'm not sure how to say it politely, but this butch-looking woman with a very short-cut, uh, cropped uh, blonde hair and uh, a dark, thick-lensed glasses. I don't think she even knows anything about the Orthodox Church, frankly. Some of her previous statements are incredibly ignorant, as well as her adherence to Orthodoxy is uh, minimalistic. I believe she is probably a Catholic, based on uh, some of the history I'm reading, but perhaps not even a Christian, based on her external appearance. I am judging by physiognomy here. Now, she did say, of course, the ecumenical patriarch sacrificially offers itself to the service of the Orthodox faithful in Lithuania. This is an exceptional honor for us. It is natural and human that as Russia began its full-scale aggression in Ukraine with the open and active support of the Moscow patriarch Kirill, some Lithuanian Orthodox can no longer in good conscience remain part of the Moscow Russian patriarchate, she reported to Reuters. Now, Frankly, what we're seeing here is probably synonymous to you know what occurred in Ukraine in 2018 when the when the schism had begun. So now the NATO has this playbook, Conrad, which I think, as we both know, they're using. They're planting these exarchates, these schismatic churches along the Russian border, these former territories which belong to the Russian church, which had Russian saints in them. And of course, by Russian saints, I don't mean ethnically Russian. I mean saints under the jurisdiction of the Russian church. It could have been ethnically Lithuanian, ethnically whatever you want to say, Ukrainian, Belarusian, Black Russian, etc. And Black Russians and Belarusians, is a different subject. But nevertheless, this particular destruction of the Russian church's integrity along its borders is, I think, a strategy and a textbook example of uh, how the globalists are going to act going forward at least years from now and at least five years in the past. We can definitely see it playing out. And the behavior of Bartholomew is really just disgusting. I mean, before this agreement was signed, the canonical church uh, sent him a letter inviting him to venerate uh, the holy martyrs of Vilnius, Anthony, John, and Eustathius. And this is even in the midst of, again, they're essentially in a form of schism over the Ukrainian issue, these canonical Lithuanian 
Orthodox Christians, but they still extend to this act of goodwill. And what does Bartholomew do? Oh, never mind. I don't even think you're a legitimate church. Signs your existence away, supposedly with the stroke of a pen. So that shows you what some of these gestures of goodwill get you, I guess. But it's uh, this isn't the curious, curious note, but Dimitri, unless there's anything you want to say to wrap us up here, I want to do the plugs and send everyone off. Is there anything... Anything you want to tie this together? Anything you want to tell the people to look forward to from us? Yeah, I just want to say this This episode is going to launch towards the end of March, but it will launch before the expulsion of the monks. So definitely, if you want to stay tuned and kind of follow the news, we'll be reporting on it through our World War Now Twitter accounts as well as some of our personal Twitter and social media accounts, the World War Now Telegram. So if you guys want to follow the news, there are some great sources out there. We will be, of course, reporting it through our own paradigm and prism, but definitely stay tuned because the next episode will cover the aftermath of the expulsion and the aftermath of all these horrendous events which you know now we're kind of uh we're kind of preluding to which hopefully you know god will stop but nevertheless we have to expect the evil of the world to at least have some sort of victory here now that Zelensky has really pushed upon it i think that's most likely it so definitely stay stay tuned we will be releasing some more exclusive a for hour episodes this week perhaps one or two but definitely next week we'll be following up with some more articles and you guys definitely uh, get involved and we appreciate all the support from uh, some of our supporters and friends and peers and those asking the questions, we really do appreciate all the involvement with the community, at least. At this point, it's been fantastic, and I've learned a lot personally, as well as uh, Conrad, I'm sure, has too. That's right, worldwarnow.substack.com. You can listen to every episode of Ether Hour if you sign up for our paid there. Be sure to just subscribe for free as well. There is a free trial, and every episode of World War Now is posted in full for free on the Substack, so be sure to check it out. It's our main home base. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's World War Now on YouTube. Like the video. Leave a comment. It's always very helpful. We love to talk to you in the comments. We try to read all of them. Uh, we also, of course, respond to Substack comments. Those are beloved. Uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter, World War Now underscore. Follow us on Telegram, World War Now, Tele, T-E-L-E. Uh, follow me on Twitter, Gnomrad, Gnomrad. Follow Dimitri, O-Canonist. And uh, we have a Rumble channel as well. We're going to eventually get stuff uploaded there. On YouTube, we post clips, so stay tuned on that. That's the, the only thing that's really exclusive to the YouTube channel will be some of those clips. So if maybe you can't listen to an hour and a half, you can listen to 11 minutes of Dimitri and I talking about World War III. But be sure to pray for the monks at the Lavra. Be sure to pray for peace all around the world. Uh, Metropolitan and Free, the canonical church there, as well as all the soldiers involved in the conflict. And... With all of that, I think I'll let Dimitri send us off. God bless, guys. And uh, for all those, um, of course, participating in Great Lent, we are approaching Easter. We're almost, uh, we are actually over so over half. And now that we're entering into April, I wish everybody a a great time. Of course, um, if, if the news stresses you out or is too anxious, definitely um, you know stay away from that sort of stuff. Definitely think positively and uh, keep, keep us as well as the church in Ukraine and yourselves and your family and friends in your prayers participate in the Orthodox Church and uh, definitely get involved in terms of, uh, you know, actually bettering your life through the faith, because I think that's probably the the one thing that's lacking in the world today, at least in the 21st century, when we live in such abundance. So we appreciate all of your support. And again, thank you for listening, guys. God bless you all.